Hello and welcome to Amplify Archaeology. In the second episode of our five-part mini-series on Newgrange and the winter solstice, I had the opportunity to chat to Dr. Jessica Smith of University College Dublin. Jessica's Passage Tomb People project examines the societies behind the passage tombs, focusing in on Ireland, North Wales and Orkney. We discuss Jessica's first impressions of Newgrange, the wealth of information you can glean from old archives, daily life in the Neolithic and what it's like to be in the chamber during the solstice. Due to Covid, this recording had to take place over Zoom, so I apologise if the audio quality is a little bit off in places. I hope you bear with us. Thanks, William, for joining me, Jessica. We're looking at Newgrange, aren't we? And, and it's the time mm-hmm. when it, it gets a lot of people thinking about the monument itself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Can you remember your first visit, the first time you saw it in the flesh? Um, mm-hmm. What were your first impressions like? When was it? I can't remember the, the exact first visit, but I'd say it was definitely in primary school. So I'm... I'm from Dublin and I think the, uh, the standard end of year school trip uh, for national school students was, was Newgrange, was up the East Coast. So Newgrange, uh, Mellifont, um, where else would we go? So it would have been, yeah, it would have been in the 80s, late, late 80s. Um, and, and again, kind of, I probably wouldn't appreciate it at the time, but knowing what I now know about the dates of the visitor center and that sort of thing, it would have been pre-visitor center. So we're talking that little wooden hut where, you know, you drive right up to the field <laughs> in front of Newgrange. Um, so very, very low tech, <laughs> simpler times. Um, and yeah, would, gosh, as a, I don't know, trying to pick apart, again, my, my current the experiences, I suppose, are my more academic views on Newgrange versus that kind of childhood encounter. Um, in some ways, I think it's kind of similar. It's a very imposing monument, um, very intimidating in a lot of ways. The sense of mystery um, and, and specialness and sacredness, I think, hasn't dimmed, hasn't changed. Um, I, probably, I probably thought it was fairly impenetrable in some ways. And I I think I still do in lots of ways because it it's very much an icon, you know, it's kind of Newgrange, the, the legend, Newgrange, the myth. So in, in lots of ways that can be um, hard to, to dig down into. Um, but yeah, I would definitely would have been impressed by its um, size. But then as, you know, as a primary school student, probably a bit more interested in the lunch <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the other day or, you know, the gift shop such as it was in the 1980s. So, that, that's all there is, isn't it? And, and, you know, the experience of kind of travelling to and from is often more fun when you're on a school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I suppose, you know, as somebody who really studies it, the Neolithic period and, and, and New Brains is part of that as well, how has your kind of perceptions of the site developed or changed as you've delved deeper into it um, over the years? Do you think differently than even you did maybe five or ten years ago 
about you, Rich? Yeah, I think so. It's it's still evolving. I, I'd say like I'm I'm still a personally a very long way from understanding a phenomenon like Newgrange and the phenomenon of kind of mega tomb building. Um, I would have done my uh, doctoral research, so my PhD on settlement archaeology, so kind of houses, stuff like that, the the daily life aspect. And and probably looking back at that, I found that a more um, accessible part of the past, I suppose, Um, easier to kind of understand and maybe that's an artificial distinction you're kind of looking at a house in the past and imagining well i know what a house is you know i can kind of relate so that's a bit dangerous too um you know projecting our our modern notions of houses on the past but so the the way i'm kind of looking still i suppose approaching newgrange now is through that that daily life angle so trying to appreciate um people's relationships with their animals um, what they were consuming what the landscape might have looked like um, their sense of time um, you know and, and chronology so I feel like that's that's still at a fairly underdeveloped stage in, in my kind of own understanding but I feel kind of I'm getting closer more the more we look into it the more I can appreciate I suppose the wider context of new Grange um, again, like we, we've talked about this in, in previous podcasts, that the monument as it exists today is a, a very stat. It's a fixed point. It's a static point. Um, this is a monument that is kind of several hundred years in in development, and it had a life after its kind of Neolithic life. Um, so you know, you have to take apart all those layers, all those centuries, possibly millennia, to to appreciate it at any one point in time. So, yeah, definitely a work in progress. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really interesting. And actually, I think it's interesting, too, to look at the daily life aspect of it, you know. And that was something I was kind of interested in. You know, I, I first started thinking about that when I went to Egypt just on holiday once. And, you know, there's the 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 houses of the people who built the pyramids and things. And you often just, you're so focused, aren't you, on the big massive yeah. monument that you kind of That's forget that. so when you're thinking about somebody like you're an everyday person almost in the neolithic period what is it what's a kind of average day that you would think that <laughs> um we well we get clues we know going i suppose going back to the the domestic sphere which is one i'm quite familiar with we know that their their domestic spaces are more than just uh, utilitarian so we know there's um, there's rituals and practices and, and superstition, if you want to call it that, in play. So, you know, special deposits like axe heads, for example, you know, placed at the bottom of post holes or at the bottom of slot trenches. So um, practices, I, I suppose, we that would be familiar to us today, maybe in the more vernacular building tradition, you know, like cottages and stuff, it's still or until quite recently it was quite a common practice, you know, people put lucky charms and things in walls and under floors and stuff. So their lives are um, suffused with, like today, you know, ritual, beliefs, superstitions, practices, um, things that get them through, mm-hmm. I suppose. Um, we also know, you know, that their, their relationships with, with animals, the animal world. Now, unfortunately, Ireland is in a kind of a, on the back foot a bit that with our acidic soils um archaeological bone doesn't survive particularly well unburned bone so quite a lot of that decays and we only have kind of fragments and the odd assemblage where the preservation is okay 
but looking at those, I suppose, fragments, we can tell, again, that their animals, for example, their cattle, are much more than just a source of milk or source of meat. So they're, you know, they're depositing them in special ways. They're um, doing kind of weird things with, with, the, with the horns and with the tails and putting them in different places. So, yeah, so we know that these people, I guess, are tuned in to their environment in a way possibly that modern, especially urban dwellers today probably don't register or recognize in the same way. So I think there's a lot of symbolism there, um, a lot of complex relationships, um, more deeply embedded with their natural world, not wanting to split kind of nature and culture, but, you know, more in tune, I suppose, with their environment. Um, we know things, uh, diet, I suppose, um, milk seems to be really important um, from the early Neolithic onwards. So lots of kind of milk residues in the pots. Um, so it's something that, kind of that stays kind of through prehistory that that dairy signal um yes yeah, to the crops we have the types some of the types of plants that they are uh growing again that's a preservation thing not not all the evidence is going to hang about in the soil but what we do find it we can identify plants and things so yeah we're, we're i think getting there probably i would say maybe the the, the biggest area on fully untapped or not fully tapped <laughs> at this point is um what the landscape looked like kind of the the environment um especially around the area around the boyne valley it's that that kind of eastern triangle it's very dry there's not many pockets where you get kind of pollen and, and paleo environmental evidence surviving yeah. so kind of coloring in i suppose that landscape um this, you know, the amount of tree cover, open land, that sort of thing. I think we could still piece together much more of that. So for me, I'm quite fascinated about how people and their animals in particular are moving through that landscape and the impact they're creating on that landscape. You know, do they have field systems, for example, yeah. like the ones we see over in Mayo in the cage of fields, or is it something else entirely? Is it wood pasture, wood grazing? Um, yeah, so... We know we know quite a bit, <laughs> um, and yeah, bone chemistry—you know, kind of isotope uh, values from kind of the, the human and animal bone—you can tell. Broadly speaking, are they? Do they have a terrestrial diet or more aquatic diet? You know, fish and stuff, um, and hints about movement and mobility as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what what bedrock are they consuming their 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 plants, their 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 diet? dietary products from are they moving off that bedrock into other areas of different parts of their lives so stuff stuff like that it's all it's all come together and i think the next next few years will be really exciting actually <laughs> yeah that, and that's it i mean and i suppose some of these exciting new discoveries um they seem to be coming out quite often now the mm. last few years in particular there's been so many uh, but quite a lot of the discoveries have actually come from old archives haven't they that yeah. um, from previous research previous excavations and, yeah. and, and things like that mm -hmm. how does looking backwards at, at some of the previous work help us to understand the site better today well it, it's hugely important um well one because i think it, in lots of ways that that era that period of major excavation mm -hmm. it's kind of behind us in a way or, or it's recognized that you know that has a big impact so a, a massive monument like new granger now you know would that ever be excavated again like they were in the 60s you know that full mm -hmm. 
I think people would be really nervous about that. There's, you know, it's a huge investment, there's huge resources needed. Um, and where we are with kind of remote sensing and, and, and more less invasive stuff, you know, there's a lot we can do without even, you know, digging into the ground at all. So that, that area, that era of big excavations, I think is not where we are at the moment. Not to say we won't go back, but you know, I, so the, the already excavated archives, um, providing they've been properly recorded and curated, which an awful lot of them have, mm-hmm. um, are there to to explore. And and it's something that we were always kind of told in, in college studying archaeology, and you, you hear people repeat it, that if you're going to dig something or analyze something, don't do all of it, because you never know what techniques are coming down the road. You yeah. know, So if you blitz through something entirely, and you destroy all of it, whether it's for scientific analysis or whatever, um, it's gone. So uh, the fact that those remains are, are still in museums and institutes and archives, um, and they've been, I suppose that respect was there when they were excavated, that knowledge, even though they probably couldn't have imagined, you know, that we're extracting genetic material from bones or that bone chemistry, you know, we could tell about diet and stuff like that even though they wouldn't have been aware of the potential, they still valued this material uh, as important and it needed to be curated. So I always find that hugely exciting going back to archives and seeing the, the level of care with which something was recorded. So, you know, when you, it's, it's literally like reaching back into the past. If you can um, revisit, say, a 50-year-old archive, like a plan, up a monument and you can read it you can understand it you can say ah that's that pit over there and i know that piece of pottery came from that pit because somebody had the foresight you know in the 60s or whatever um to record that properly um so it's it's fabulous um and lots of these archives i said are, are in really good nick um so to be able to to go back and add you know they, they might have maybe identified the pottery type or identified the animal species for example and we're going back now, you know, to find out what environment that animal lived in, you know, what sort of food they were fed and did they move during their lifetime. So just adding to that picture continually. And it's a lovely, the lovely feeling as well that you're kind of um, moving the research along. You know, you're adding your bit to the story. And um, I get a real, real kick out of that. It's great. Oh, it's fantastic. It's kind of that old cliche about it being like a jigsaw and you're just adding new yeah. pieces. It, it holds true, doesn't it? Especially when you're looking mm-hmm. at the uh, our archives, for example. Mm-hmm. And um, I suppose, you know, we've we've talked in that previous podcast for, about passive tombs and, and you mentioned it earlier there about the very long life of, uh, if life is the right word, of the monument like Newgrange. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how much do you think that the people who first started built this is quite <laughs> so so sorry for this but how much do you think that the people who first started building that monument would have had in common in terms of belief and ideas with the people at the other end of it if you like um do you think that there was a radical shift in behavior, belief or culture as far as you could tell or do you think that there was a certainly a continuity? Yeah I think 
we where research and, and appreciation is now, thinking is now. I think we're we're more swinging to the CA to the side of continuity. Mm-hmm. Um, part of those again, like it's it's boils down to how archaeologists order material and see difference and classify things. So maybe earlier approaches in the 20th century, for example, would be about kind of typochronology. So saying, oh, that pottery is different to that pottery, therefore different people. Okay. Um, and as we've kind of realized, like, yeah, that's a specific way of thinking about categories and, and data and stuff. Um, we've begun to appreciate, I think, the similarities. And there, there are striking similarities um, in how that space, that Newgrange space, as it changes over the centuries is used. So, you know, bodies are still put in, uh, fragmented bodies are still put in, um, portions of, of populations, if you know what I mean. So a selection process is in, is in place. There may be differences um, in the proportions of burnt to unburnt. So choice, a, a change or a shift in choices about, um, yeah, do you put in, say, an, a whole unburnt skull or are you cremating that and breaking it up and that sort of thing so but of course if you are to track that sort of behavior kind of closely you need to be kind of radiocarbon dating almost every every little bone element to to see where that falls uh, chronologically um but yeah i mean another difference that that people have pointed to in the past is um the shift between or the shift from inside to outside so um, in the later Neolithic and into the third millennium BC, um, you have all these amazing kind of t- timber circles and circular spaces and closures and stuff outside. And in conjunction with that, um, all those amazing curbstones, which you only really find on the, the very developed kind of later tombs, that's been argued as, as evidence of the whatever whatever ceremony whatever experience is binding people together there it's it the shift is is outside you know it's, it's bringing together maybe larger amounts or it's it's more of a spectacle in that way as opposed to something that's going on in secret in the dark clothes so yeah you can definitely you can definitely track that but yeah the, i think at, at the back of people's minds today especially you know prehistorians is is that awareness that previous distinctions made on you know pottery type so that sort of thing mm-hmm. mightn't be as rigid as we first suspected okay. um, sure it's different influences but it doesn't necessarily mean you've, you know you've got a different ethnic group for example yes yeah they wouldn't have thought of themselves as being that different themselves yeah. 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 that's very interesting and i suppose when we're looking at a, a tomb like new Granger, it has such a kind of obviously it has a tourism draw today you know you get on a, not this year sadly um but on a, on a regular year you get hundreds of thousands of people come, come all yeah. over but what is it about uh, and especially with the kind of solstice mm-hmm. ceremonies on a usual year you would get a good crowd of people going to be the yeah and of course you get your lucky lottery winners and we'll maybe talk oh, about yeah. the moment about people who actually get to see inside it but what is it do you think that pe- pulls people back today to want to be present at a site like Newgrange at a time like midwife, winter solstice. Yeah. What do you think it says about us as a culture? I think you, you probably have to distinguish between different types of audiences. Mm. There's definitely the element of Newgrange as a brand, as an mm. icon, that's um, completely understandable and, and 
you know, it's 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 pushed a lot internationally. It's yeah. you know, um, you can compare that, you know, with the success story of, of Stonehenge as well from a marketing perspective. You know, these are yes. brands yes. Um, that attract maybe more international audiences for the the people maybe who live around the the Boyne area have that maybe more regular connection they kind of live in that landscape or they're there more more often i think that the Boyne is a very the Boyne valley is a very special place it's a very atmospheric place mm-hmm. um especially around winter time you know low hanging fog mm-hmm. um the ridge lines the the intervisibility um it seems while it's it's connect like it's very connected it's just kind of off the m1 motorway super busy motorway and drogheda is, is very, very close um once you come off that, you you do feel you're in a, a special landscape that's kind of um, I don't know removed a bit from from everywhere else. So I think that sense of place still lingers and is still very very strong. Um, and the role of the river, the place of the river in that too, um, it's something actually I think they capture particularly well in the new. Um, just well, it's not just a display, but the new experience in, in the visitor center, New Green Visitor Center, where they they brought in that soundscape, and um, so all the things, and it just kind of reminds you, yeah, it's it's not just you know that gorgeous quartz facade. It's it's everything else. It's it's the sounds, the water, the animals, and um, the birds, the vegetation. Um, yeah, I think it's a, it is a really special special landscape, mm-hmm. kind of yeah. No, that's that's fascinating. I'm really hoping to get to see it myself. The uh, the new mm-hmm. exhibition always got to go up, but obviously with everything that was going, yes, on, yes. you know, that's top of my list now. Yes. Um, so you've been one of the the fortunate people to experience mm-hmm. this awesome. Can you describe yeah. what that was like? Ah, oh, that was amazing. That was in, it was in 2009. Um, I I'd finished not long finished the uh, research framework for the Bend of the Boyne World Heritage Site. Um, so I was, yeah, I was allowed access and on, I think it was the 20th. So the day before kind of Celsius proper. And as you know, um, like there's the lottery it, itself of being picked to win, but there's the, the weather lottery. Yes. <laughs> the lottery. Yeah. Um, so you can never, never guarantee. Um, but we were lucky. The um, the clouds cleared um, a bit before nine in the morning. Um, yeah, it's just God, very, very special. Very, int- like I've been in Newgrange, before and after with the um you know the the electric beam you know, yeah. the, the simulation as it were and yeah. it's a good simulation so i was kind of i knew what to expect from that perspective but it's it's incomparable it's a very it's a very intense light it's still narrow that narrow kind of i think claire tuffy described it as a pencil thin beaming light it's very it's very narrow but it's really intense it's almost like the light is coming from the ground up, if you know what I mean, like it's a tiny little kind of crack or chasm in, in the ground. It's it's really um, striking. Um, and then when you remember to stop looking down at the ground and maybe crouch down and see through the the, the roof box, yeah, you can see the the sphere of the sun, which is kind of orangey, a um, bit watery orangey. But it's yeah, it's, it's oh, so lucky. <laughs> it's yeah. So amazing, an amazing experience. Yeah, it sounds absolutely magical. And I suppose with all of you, kind of the the research that you put into the Neolithic period in in general, and and mm-hmm. as you said, 
are there any kind of common misconceptions or is there any ways that you think the general public should maybe think about the Neolithic uh, that isn't perhaps a current idea? Oh, gosh. No. Um, probably, I think pe people maybe assume that the communities living at that period of time, and not just the Neolithic, probably prehistory more generally, were maybe a bit bit simple, a bit primitive, but kind of just eking out an existence. Yeah. Um, but the more we look at the the evidence for farming and the kind of the practices and strategies and things, it's it's really sophisticated. Mm -hmm. They know like I always try to remind people that the the arrival of farming is literally bringing animals and plants on boats over the water. You know, these aren't native species. Um, that they're just figuring out <laughs> how to to tame or interact with, um, so it's a fairly you know it's a it's a fairly big deal in terms of Ireland anyway, being being an island and having that sea um, barrier and it's it's not a barrier because people are able to traverse it pretty pretty handily enough, um, but yeah they 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 reintroduce these these species, particularly cattle, I know it's not just about cows, but I'm kind of into cows at the moment. Um, and, you know, dairying and milking has a, an amazing um, long-term trajectory on the island of Ireland, you know, an impact. Um, so I thought possibly people today mightn't realize or appreciate the, 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 the time depth of that tradition and the sophistication around that. Um, these are people who are, yeah, were highly, highly skilled in craft, in in their own technology, in in reading the year, reading their environment, and kind of living living alongside that. Um, yeah, so I think that's it. I think they're just to not not to underestimate <laughs> the people thousands, thousands of years ago. So that's all for this episode. I'd just like to thank Jessica for her time and her fantastic insights. And remember, Jessica was on Amplify Archaeology back in episode 4 for a discussion on passage tombs, so please do be sure to check that out. You can also find more information and show notes on the episode page on abataheritage.ie. Don't forget, we've got extra episodes coming for this mini-series on Newgrange and the Winter Solstice. If you have the time, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast and sharing it with your friends. It really would help us to spread the word. Thank you, and I'll see you again.